Listener Production. Hi crew, Tommy here. I'm lucky enough to produce the Howie Games. As a special surprise to Howie for the 200th episode, we put together some special messages. So, over to you. Hi Howie, Tolly here from South Australia. It's Jake from Melbourne here. I'm Pat from Sydney. My name is Keaton, I'm from Adelaide, South Australia. My name is Paddy Hedger, I'm 12 and I live in Kingscliff on the far north coast of New South Wales. Congratulations on 200 episodes, it's a huge milestone to hit. I listen to the Howie Games because I love the way that the stories are told. I love the Howie Games because it helps shorten those long trips to away games in the scorching summer heat. Athletes and people of profile feel comfortable to come on and and share their stories and explore a bit of vulnerability. I had half hour drives to the hospital every day and listen to you. I want to thank you for getting me through. To me, the Howie Games is a great podcast hosted by one of my favourite cricket commentators. And I love listening to the episodes that I don't think I'll get anything out of by maybe people who I haven't heard their story before being able to open up and and to have that platform has been really special. My favourite moment from the 200 episodes is when Howie threatened to bring a six-pack of beers into the studio to get Scott Boland to loosen up. The the World Cup Tour Diary, it it just, it doesn't get much crazier than that. My favourite players on your podcast have been Aaron Phillips and Usman Kawaja. When you do listen back to those early episodes, you see how far Howie's come. Having your voice come through and, uh, and the happy, joyous vibe you give while giving an interview, it's, um, I want to thank you. Congrats again on 200 episodes, all the best. Keep up the good work. All right, let's get on to the milestone episode. Over to you, Guru. Okay, are you recording? Righto, righto, righto. Let's start with a thank you, shall we? A big, juicy, love-filled, joyful thank you from me to all of you out there who have listened to this podcast over the years. Your support, your positivity through social media messages and in person, and the fact so many of you have spread the word about this podcast to your crew, to your loved ones, all of that support has enabled us to get to this point, which is welcome to episode 200 of the Howie Games Part A. 200 of the very best. And Richards in double century. 200. Oh, how good is that? Game 200. Putting on some sort of show in game 200. That is something I'm here to tell you. I can think of no better guest to bring up the double ton than Matilda's star, Steph Catley. Steph Catley. No problems. Episode 100 of the podcast featured Adam Scott. Scotty spoke in detail about his journey to become the first Australian to win the US Masters and don the green jacket, which was super cool. Episode 200, for mine, it's at that level again. Because in Steph, we have an athlete at the centre of, for mine, the biggest Aussie sports story of 2023. The incredible run of the Matildas at the 2023 Women's World Cup, a team and a tournament that won our hearts, that won our minds, that inspired us. If you cast your mind back to that tournament, it basically just lifted us, it elevated us all, which is everything that sports should do, really. The country was captivated, and Steph played a lead role as captain for much of the tournament. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will 
find out by and by. From playing with boys as a kid to the beginning of a professional career playing in front of 100 people to playing in front of 75,000 at a World Cup with 10 plus million watching on telly in Australia alone and a full-time career with Arsenal, Steph Catley is everything that this podcast hopes to show that through hard work, through belief and through determination, the dreams, no matter how big, no matter how wild, no matter how crazy, the dreams can actually come true. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Thanks again to you all for tuning in and supporting the show, but a big thank you to The Boys. The Boys, the most hardworking, dedicated group of operators that leave no stone unturned, that always go the extra yard and have from the start. Thanks to MJ, who was with us from episode one when we spoke about how in the hell are we going to do a podcast. To Das, who came on to just smooth and sharpen things up. In more recent times, Tommy, who's been a very high draft pick and is dominating, and Marcel, who is the video king. Thanks to those boys for making every part of this series fun to do. Also, thanks to Grant Tothill and the crew at Listener for their support over the years, and specifically for this episode, thanks to Anne O'Dong from Football Australia for making it happen. Alrighty, enjoy the story of Stephanie Lease Catley. Game changer. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I often say at this stage we're excited about this guest, but we have been hoping this would happen for three or four months now. Uh, this athlete, we couldn't be more pumped that she is number 200 because what her team and herself did this year was for mine the sporting highlight for Australia in the year 2023. Her name is Steph Catley. She's a triple world cupper. She's been to multiple Olympics. She's played all around the world. She's beaming in from Canada. Steph, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for joining me on episode 200. We're pumped to have you here. Thank you very much for having me in episode 200. I am honoured. Well, well, there's so much to talk about. You are in Canada at the moment. How many frequent flyer (laughs) points do you log up these days playing in Australia, playing in Europe, playing for the Matildas? You must cover some serious case. Yeah, it is a little bit ridiculous. Um, I think I'm def- I'm a platinum now, um, which comes mm. with its benefits. It gets you into all sorts of lounges that are lovely. I'm definitely not complaining about that, but we are clocking a lot of hours on the plane and changing time zones, it feels like, every few weeks. So it's pretty exhausting, but it's a, it's a good life. Have you got a sleep routine? I've just come back from a month in India on the Cricket World Cup with work, and I must admit, as I get older, Steph, I start to struggle across time zones and I struggle with sleeping. Are you? Can you just get to your new venue and knock yourself out and go, or do you lie in bed awake at night not sleeping, stressed about the fact you're not sleeping because you've got to perform? Yeah, it's so difficult, especially when you've got to play really quickly. Like recently when we went back to Australia, 
we had three games in the window. So it was a short window, but we had three games. So we played like, I think two days uh, after we landed. And I remember feeling like a little bit stressed when I was sleep, like going to sleep. I really felt like I needed to fall asleep. And I think that obviously makes it so much worse when you're trying to get to sleep. But I think I have gotten better, especially the um, Australia to London, London to Australia, because that's sort of my main flight. So I feel like I'm good at that now. And going back to London, it just feels a little bit easier. But Australia, I'm up at the crack of dawn most days and then trying to fight to stay awake from about two o'clock onwards. It's pretty rough. But I think as well, when you haven't seen the girls in a while, you just, you spend time with them in the afternoon, you go and have coffee, especially when we're back in Australia, we cherish the the coffee shops and the coffee. So that sort of keeps us awake for the afternoon. The problem I'm finding, Steph, is when I started struggling earlier on in the year going to India and then coming back for the IPL cricket. So I started reading about sleep and how to achieve more sleep. And the more you read about it, the more you realise how important it is. And you go down this rabbit hole and then you're lying there thinking, I didn't know how much sleep I needed, but now I do and it's stressing me out. That's good. That's a good heads up because I'm not going to read anything thing. I, <laughs> I need an empty head. I don't need any more stress. Hey, I think, um, the, the, as I said, I want to talk to you about your career, but we will focus on what happened this year. But but in recent times, the Matildas were awarded the Don Award, which is the highest honour in Australian sport. Congratulations to you for the role you played in that. If I'd said to you when you started playing football, however many years ago, that the female football team of Australia could win such an award, I'm not sure you would have believed me. No, I probably wouldn't have, especially sort of where we started out. You know, when I came into the national team, we were playing in front of a couple of hundred people and it was mostly friends and family. So to see where the game's taken off to, especially this year in particular and especially in Australia, I honestly, I didn't think I'd see it in in my time playing. I thought I'd be well retired before anything like this happened in Australia or, you know, you've seen it happen in other countries, but, um, you know, it's just so dominated in Australia by so many different sports and football's just never been a heartbeat for us. It's just never been something that the nation's really gripped onto in a long-term effect, um, especially female football. So, yeah, I mean, that award is, it's such an honour and every time I talk to someone about it who doesn't know, I'm like, it's such a privilege. Like, it's just an incredible award and for us to even be nominated was massive. So to win it and to know that we inspired the nation the way that we did, it's just incredible. I think it's that inspired line um, and we'll, we'll talk about it as we get through to it. But the Matildas would be from a you know, from that sort of weird marketing brand perspective, it would be the most loved brand in Australian sport at the moment. But I think in the grassroots, where we all operate with our kids' sport, the Matildas would be the most popular sport team in Australia at the moment, which, again, is remarkable but quite wonderful and a credit to all the hard work you and your teammates have put in and those that have gone before you, I guess, in many ways. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we've always felt really loved by... Australia and by our fans on a certain level but I think the World Cup just brought in so many different types of fans and different types of people Um, you know at the World Cup when we were driving to the stadiums you'd see little boys grown men um, grandma and grandpa in shirts with you know Sam Kerr carpenter on their back whatever it was Um, yeah so I think that's the the most significant thing for me is that it attracted the attention of every single person, no matter the demographic. And, um, yeah, that's something I think that it's not been that way for 
any point in time in Australia. Like I said, I've seen it sort of happen in England um, with the Euros. The girls won over there, so I saw a massive shift, obviously, playing over there and just thought, you know, how incredible would this be if we had it in our country? And to have it happen the way that it did um, and to have the support that we got was very, very special. So where did this football journey start for you? Tell me, where, where did you grow up and where did you get involved and when did you first start playing footy? So um, it probably started in the backyard with my brother. So I have an older brother, Daniel. Um, he's about two years older than me. And we just loved everything sport. You know, growing up in Melbourne, we were massive AFL fans. We love the cricket we loved playing football, soccer in the backyard. And we had a couple of the boys around the corner that we'd always play 2v2 with in the front yard. And um, I think that's where I fell in love with the game, but just would never have expected it to take me anywhere. Um, and then eventually for I, for a specific reason, I'll throw him under the bus here, but my brother was in primary school and the teacher thought he needed to go out and be a bit more social. So she suggested playing soccer. <laughs> Proper throwing wow. him under the bus there. So, um, yeah, he went down to our local club and started playing and um, mum would just take me down what would, to what, what? What was the club? East Bentley Junior Soccer Club. Okay. So you used to tag along, yeah? Used to tag along, yep. And I used to run up and down the sidelines with the ball, showing off, you know, doing little tricks and saying basically, look, I can do everything they're doing and just being generally quite <laughs> annoying. <laughs> Um, and then eventually I think they got a little bit sick of me and just said, just throw in with the boys, just, you know, see what happens, let her play. And, yeah, from that training session onwards, I just remember feeling like it was a, a moment of clarity. It was – I just fell in love with it. It's, I knew it was exactly where I was supposed to be. From that moment on, it was all I could think about. Always had a ball at my feet. I was always kicking it against something, driving my mum insane. Um, and just playing. And, yeah, that was sort of the moment for me and I, I never looked back after that. And I always ask this question to every guest, all 200 of them, were you, now you said you like cricket, so you'll understand this, were you Ricky Ponting that was a star at a young age and was always going to be a professional athlete or were you Justin Langer that had talent but had to work really, really hard? I love that question because I feel like I was sort of somewhere in between, I think, I, in a lot of situations, I stood out and I don't know if that was at the start because I was playing with boys and I was a girl that could keep up. Um, and then I went on to some representative teams where I stood out again and I would sort of, you know, make teams based on pure athleticism. I was quick back then. Um, you know, I had a bit about me because I could, I was toughing it out with the boys. So I think that put me in a really good position but then I worked my butt off. I did so much that I think back to now where I was like, how did I, how did I have the motivation to do that? Where did that even come from? I would make like lists of goals to achieve where I was doing juggling, where I was doing some sort of passing. I would go and do extra training, extra running, just because I, I loved it and I loved feeling like I was getting better and loved that sort of drive that came with getting better. And I then when I started getting into youth national teams, obviously you're around all these people that are incredible. And I often felt like I had to keep doing that to keep up. Like I don't think naturally maybe I had as much talent as some of the girls like a Sam or a Caitlin Ford or whoever it was, but I 
kept up because I feel like I put in so much work and technique-wise I just did so much on the ball, trained with boys as much as I could when I was at uh, that sort of 13 to 15 age just to try and keep getting more out of myself and I think that's held me in really good stead for the rest of my career because I just put in so much foundation work. It's a great answer and as it's you know, for every, I reckon 95% of the athletes that have been on this show, Steph, hard work is is their first tenant. That's where they seem to have come from. A couple of questions on that before we progress through the age groups. When, uh, I presume there was no women's football on the TV. So now, you know, my kids can look at Sam Kerr or Steph Catley or, you know, the, the whole list. Was there any women's footballers that you could look and identify with or not? Um, yeah, when I was growing up, there was nothing. There was nothing on TV, nothing in the papers. Um, for a long time, I didn't even know that the Matildas existed um, huh. until probably eventually I started making some state representative teams. And then I had Melissa Barbieri, who was um, a Victorian, and she was captain of the Matildas at the time. So I think I met her at maybe a representative training session. She might have been at Melbourne Victory just as sort of I was coming in the year before. I think I was 14 and she was there when I, obviously you can't play at 14, but I was training there and abouts. Um, so once I met her and realised sort of, you know, she was the captain of the Matildas, that was a very aha moment for me. Um, and she was there to really guide me through a lot. She was the only other Victorian at the team. Um, and for a long time, yeah, it was probably just me and her from Victoria. So, um, yeah, she was probably the one person that I looked at and was like, wow, okay, she's captain of the Matildas. That is a pathway. Uh, I want to do what she's doing. But really, other than that, all of my role models were probably male athletes. Like? Were you like, you a footy fan? Who'd you go for in the footy? St Kilda. St um, Kilda. So your generation where you'd be like... <sighs> Hayes and Rewalt and Goddard type operations? Is that is that your that territory? Is right up my alley. Those three in right. particular. I would say like Lenny Hayes is my probably out of any athlete in the world growing up, he was my idol. Um was he? I just love the way he operates. I I love how humble he was off the field, um, his leadership, uh, the way he played, the skill, the ferociousness everything about him was I would try and sort of emulate in a football sense um I love Nick Freewell as well for just as many of the same reasons but um yeah I always give that answer when someone says like who was your sporting idol growing up in, I, in a football world when I say oh they're AFL players people kind of turn their nose up and they're like what do you mean like that's not pure in the football sense but that's the truth they were my idols um and yeah, still, still are really. But, but it shows you where your sports come from. That you, you know, there wasn't idols to look up to. So you may not remember this, but can you remember the first time you scored a goal? Like obviously now you're known as a defender and a gun penalty taker, which we'll get to. But like, did you start as a as a like most kids that are talented when they play sport, a, a ball sport, they end up forward because they're talented. Were you like a goal scoring machine, or what were you? The boys team I played for when I first started was. We were really good. Like we went maybe three or four seasons undefeated. And oh. I was a left midfielder, left winger, the pure left winger. But I just love crossing the ball. I love setting up goals. So that's probably the most I can remember 
But I did, I did score goals, definitely. We used to have these little charts that give us laminated things at the end of the season and it'd tell you all your stats and how many goals you scored. And I was always up there, like, second, maybe one year first. Um, but that seems to have dried up. I don't know what's happened. <laughs> I'm too far back now. <laughs> the older I get, they just keep pushing me back. <laughs> and... At what age, Steph, did you start playing with girls? Like, as you said, you, you were integrated into a boys' team. When, when do you play or do you not get to play with girls till you start getting to representative football? Um, no, I moved to a girls' team when I was going to say 12 or 13, but at that point I was sort of already integrating into representative teams, so it was just sort of like... Um, I think I went over to Sandringham Junior Soccer Club who had a really good girls program. They had a lot of talented girls that were sort of doing both. They were training with Sandringham but also doing the representative training. So we it sort of seemed like a good blend to go in there. Um, but I was only there for a couple of years, like I said, doing both of those things. So, um, yeah, it was. I'm going to say 13. And at that age, are you thinking, you know, I've got a – a daughter that turns oh, 14 in three days' time, which is frightening, Steph, and I've <laughs> got an 11-year-old. Uh, it is frightening. <laughs> but anyway, that's a discussion for another day. Um, and I've got an 11-year-old son. So they start to talk about, you know, what they want to do. Was was a 12, 13-year-old, Steph Catley, what do you want to do? I want to be a professional footballer or no? It definitely wasn't I want to be a professional footballer because I don't really think that the pathway was there for me at mm. that point. It definitely wasn't clear. So... All I knew is that I loved playing football and I was so competitive. I just wanted to be better than everyone. I wanted to keep getting better. And that kind of kept me winding up in different teams and with different coaches and different situations that sort of led me into a pathway where I eventually got to like a, I think it was a national championship Um but it was never in my head at that point that I w- that was what I wanted to do with my life. It was just I go to school, I play football, I want to be the best that I can be. And it was just like a natural drive in me to just keep getting better and wanted to get as far as I possibly could, wherever that would be. And then you become a professional footballer. I've got it written here, you made your senior debut for Melbourne Victory against Perth Glory at age 15. <laughs> yeah. I know it sounds 15. ridiculous, doesn't it? What was it? Was it overwhelming? Like, take me back. Yeah, it's funny because I. So at the time, I was training. There was a thing called the NTC program, and we had like a young girls group, and then we had the senior girls group, which was basically the Melbourne Victory team. But they would train sort of in the off season and train together as the NTC team. And I was training when I was, like I said, twelve or thirteen with the NTC younger team. And then our coach was also the victory coach. So he would kind of grab one or two of the young girls and integrate them into the older girls team. Um, And I was doing that for a while. So I was really training with the Melbourne victory team from when I was about 14 um, and felt like I was ready to go probably at that point, but um, was allowed to sort of step in and play when I was 15. And, yeah, I can definitely remember it being pretty overwhelming because I think that that first game that I played in, I came off the bench, but it happened to be a curtain raiser for the men's. And it was at, at the time it was maybe Eddie had stadium. Yeah, it <laughs> um, would be. Eddie Marvel had, yep. now, right? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it was a curtain raiser. So it was a, a bigger crowd than I ever played 
in front of. It was a stadium that I'd watched St Kilda play at so many times. <laughs> First big stadium. <laughs> I was buzzing. I was overwhelmed. Um, I remember coming on the field and just like running around like a headless chook. Like I think I got <laughs> <laughs> belted over by some bigger girls and was just crossing the ball and shooting and just, yeah, a wild performance. But, um, yeah, definitely a, a very good memory. I only asked you this because we're trying to represent in many ways, Steph, where you and your sport have come from. C- can you can you cast your mind back and give me an idea what you would have got paid to play for Melbourne Victory in, you know, so what are we talking? We're talking 2009. I presume it was a match payment type situation? It was, yeah. It was a match payment. And from memory, God, the numbers are going to be hard to get accurate, but it was, I think if you started a game, it was a couple of hundred. And then if you were a sub, it was less. And then if you didn't get on the field, you got nothing. Um. Yeah, but it it was not a lot. (laughs) And in those early days, I don't even know. I don't know if it was because I wasn't asking for it, but I don't know if I got anything (laughs) maybe at the start. (laughs) Who knows? Right. I mean, I can't remember, although I probably spent it like that. You know what you like when you're a kid and you get a little bit of money? I was (laughs) throwing it about with all my friends. But, um, yeah, it definitely wasn't a lot. It was a couple of hundred max per game. The thing I love about your sport, and this is the this is the conversation I really love, Steph. Whether it's you or John Aloisi moving to Europe, or Tim Kale, as or Craig Johnson when he came on this show and talked about arriving in Liverpool, all of a sudden at a young age, you find yourself on the other side of the world, and you're trying to play professional football, but you're also trying to integrate, and you're young. So you went and played in the American National Women's Soccer League for Portland. So it says 2014. So what are you there? You're like 19 or 20 or something? Yeah, I uh, I think I was just 19. So what is an experience like that as, as, a, as a young Melbourne girl? You're trying to find your way as a 19, 20-year-old and then you're trying to find your way professionally and get into a competitive workspace. How was that experience for you? Yeah, I look back at that um, first year in Portland and I probably see it as the pinnacle turning point probably in my career. Um, right. Yeah, I was I was young and um, I obviously left home just on the fact that, you know, Portland was one of the best teams in the world at that point with some of the best players in the world and the fact that they wanted me, I was, you know, so ecstatic. I was like, yes, this is it. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going overseas. Um, didn't think too much about it. It was just like a no-brainer for me. And then when I got there, it was a bit of a shock, I think, because I was went from being sort of at the top of my game. Um, I think I was maybe captaining some uh, my team in the W League at that point. I was at the top of the food chain in the national team, feeling pretty good about myself. And then I went into that team and there's um, Christine Sinclair, uh, one of the greatest women's footballers ever who we're about to play against. Um, <laughs> Alex Morgan, Tobin Heath, um, wow. Vera Biquet, who was captain of the Spanish national team at the time. Um, uh, Nadine Angra, who was German national team captain. These sh- these huge, incredible players who were leaders in their own right. Um, I walked into that change room and I was just like, 
wow, <laughs> I'm literally bottom of the bottom, nobody, by far the youngest player, obviously in America, <laughs> I'm not even legal to do anything. <laughs> so it was definitely a massive shock. And I think football-wise, as soon as I started playing, I just felt like I was nowhere near it. I needed to do so much more to get to the level that these players were at mentally, physically, um, tactically, technically. I was just behind. And, and how? so how, what, what's that realisation like when you're 19 on the other side of the world and you've been a, a big fish in a small pond? What's the realisation like? And did you go back to your tenant of hard works is what's going to get me out of this hole type yeah, scenario? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think I just uh, went into the state where I, at first I think I was a bit overwhelmed and I, I was not sure how to get out of it. And I think from memory I started a lot of games and just wasn't playing well. And then eventually my coach sort of sat me down and was like, you're just not, you're not up to it. You're not hitting it. Um, wow. You need to do this. You need to do this better. And then um, eventually I didn't start. And I remember being so overwhelmed, calling home, just thinking, I think saying to my mum, saying to my brother, like, have I just made such a big mistake? Like, if I'm not up to this, I'm just not going to play. Um and it could sort of ruin my career, basically. That's the way I was feeling. Um, and then once I got off the phone, I remember just making the decision to just suck it up and to get better. That's sort of what I'd done my whole career. Um, and just taking a breath and thinking, it doesn't matter if I'm at the bottom of the, bottom of the food chain, I'm going to work my way up. Um, and eventually I'll get back to playing in that team. And um, I just remember going to training every day uh, with a chip on my shoulder, working hard, um, trying to emulate players, learn from them. And eventually I got back in the team and came off the bench a couple of times and made a big difference, got some assists. Um, so, yeah, got there eventually. Yeah, like we, we could go or I could take seven hours and list the number of competitions you've played in and the, the number of um, successes you've had. Um, but there's a couple of things I want to ask you about in relation to where we're getting to. The 2016 Olympics – uh, a quarter final. They're obviously in Brazil. You guys was zip zip with Brazil in at the end of completed play, yeah. Yes. Yep. So you go, you go, and you get beaten seven six in an Olympic quarter final on penalties. Now, obviously, we're going to have a, a happy conversation about penalties later on. But to further illustrate the happiness of that, what is it like walking off? the pitch in an Olympics when you've lost at that level to the home side in a quarterfinal on penalties. Yeah, that was um, a pretty hard moment for all of us, I think. Uh, that Olympics holds some terrible memories for me in particular. I was um, injured before the tournament started, yeah. had a stress fracture, came back from that, um, and in that game went off at half time with a torn hamstring. So I had to watch that penalty shootout from the sideline, which was awful in itself. But, um, yeah, that was an, a, a tough moment watching my teammates, you know, who took those penalties go through that. The Brazilian crowd was like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. It was a very daunting arena to be in. Um, but looking back now, I think our team learnt so much from that experience and came out a lot stronger um, you know, that was a moment where we were all pretty young going into that situation and 
you know, it, it hurt definitely. But I don't think our team was capable of going any further than that at that point. And looking back now, I definitely recognise that. Um, so, yeah, I think as much as it hurt, the, the lessons that we got from it probably held us in really good stead for the things we did after that. The team, the core of the team, Steph, has been together for quite a long period of time. And you, you mentioned earlier on you'd go you'd go to some of those junior representatives and you had to work hard because you weren't. And you mentioned Sam Kerr. Well, when did you first play with or against Sam? And was she always going to be what she has become? Was she was she the Ricky Ponting or not? Sam is just a bag full of natural talent. Um, I think, you know, she played AFL when she was coming, when she was growing up um, and she probably would have been really, really good at that. But she's athletic in a way that I've seen no one before. It's so natural. It's so graceful. Um, You know, she can jump, she can run. um, But she's also such an intelligent footballer and she's a hard worker and she's got a very brave head on her shoulders. I think nothing phases her. And she's been that way since she was a kid. And I think I met her, or I didn't actually meet her, but the first time I played against her was at a state championship. So we're in Coffs Harbour and I was playing for Victoria. She was playing for WA. And the first (laughs) memory I have of Sam Kerr is I was on the field playing for Victoria against, I think it might have been New South Wales, for instance, and we, it was a, it was like a quarterfinal or something at this tournament. And we had a penalty shootout and we lost. And a bunch of us girls were in tears, crying after the game. The tournament was done. And she was sat with her WA team on this hill that you could watch the game. And she had this huge boom box that she was carrying around with her. And she played Cry Me a River. <laughs> <laughs> and she was just this little kid with like this little middle part and I just remember looking at her, her in the eye and was like who is that like what is she doing <laughs> and then I ended up at an under 17s camp with her not too long after and I knew exactly who she was <laughs> <laughs> next up on the podcast oh. I'm not happy with this one. One of the biggest names in Indian cricket, in fact, one of the biggest names in world cricket, probably the most famous voice in modern cricket commentary, courtesy of Fox Cricket, the Howie Games brings to you the big man, Ravi Shastri. When did you decide to change the age-old, we've got the two captains, Pat Cummins wins the toss, Pat, what are you going to... When did you decide to write? Was it like the IPL when it came along? Yeah. Right, well, I've got, I got to crank this up a bit mm. now. Yeah, I, I, I thought IPL was the place where it first started. You know, I just started going to every state and using a line of the language of that state. So you'd have a line up your sleeve? So I have a line up my sleeve. I would go to a local, get a line up and then pump it up. And yeah. then I could see the reaction of the crowd. Yeah. And I said, why, That's a why, why not this in... Uh, I mean, which rule says you can't do it in international cricket? Yeah. You know, yes, red ball cricket demands a little more respect and it's different. Mm-hmm. But still it can be different. It lifts up everybody. Yes. You're in the thick of the action. The umps hate me. <laughs> the umps uh, oh, the, the match referee hates me. I mean, <laughs> Jeff Grove will say, oh, he's come again. Because, you know, he won't hear, he might not hear the yeah, yeah, captains yeah. and then you might make a wrong decision. You know, there was a World Cup final where the noise was so loud. 
where we had to retoss. Where was that? 2011 final. Was it? Yeah. That is Ravi Shastri. Next up on the show. Radio, let's get back to Steph. So you debuted for the Matildas July 2012 versus New Zealand. And here they come. Australia against New Zealand. What's it like playing for your country for the first time? When you've grown up, you've played with the boys as a six-year-old and you're progressing and then you pull on the the national top for the first time. Yeah. um, I mean, before I made my debut for the Matildas, I played for the under-17s and under-20s. And obviously wear the the same jersey. You've played for Australia, but at youth level. Um, but I still remember seeing the jersey in front of me, being surrounded by, you know, senior Matildas, and it just feeling so different when I put it on. It was like heavier. It felt it was the same. It was exactly the same jersey, but it just felt heavier and more significant. And I think um, I remember taking a little selfie and sending it to my mum, and just being like. We made it, Mum. <laughs> Here it is. Um, yeah, so that moment was huge for me and I was that determined, obsessed kid. Every goal that I had was so I – was, I was so straight-lined towards it. I couldn't think of anything else. So those moments were massive for me and definitely emotional and exciting and, um, yeah, full of wonder. So for me, watching – women's football, before we get to the World Cup, I started to, I guess, take an interest for the first time because you associate, you've got a, you've got an understanding and a love of certain teams in the EPL. And then those teams are being replicated in the women's form of the game. So you you end up at Arsenal. Um, You've been there for a few years now. Tell me how it's progressed in those few years and tell me about life as a professional footballer in the UK, which you are, which is which is pretty cool. Catley arriving here with Miedemar to her left. She's looking at Ida. How about that? She's absolutely roofed it. Arsenal two up. Surely this one's in the bag now. It's the first ever WSL goal for Steph Catley and what a goal. Over to you, Man United. It is really cool. I think... When I was growing up, a lot of what I would do when I was really young with a football was pretend that I was trialling for, um, you know, Chelsea's men's team or Arsenal's men's team. And I was <laughs> I was like, that's what I would picture. So I think it was like really full circle when I signed for Arsenal because I was like, this is where I started, this is where I am now. Um, so those moments are really, really special. But... Um, yeah, signing Arsenal was a dream. I'd wanted to play in Europe for a long time and Arsenal were top of the food chain. They were winning everything back then. Um, and then eventually um, the Euros come around and the England women's team obviously did what they did and did incredible things. And I think that was a real swinging point um, for the league and for women's football in general, I think. I think they really showed what it is to run a tournament the way that they did and the way the team went about it in terms of winning the whole thing, I think set a standard that hadn't been set before and that really filtered down to the league and to supporters and to, you know, all different clubs and it just felt like a dynamic shift, especially just even in the streets, like walking around with my teammates, they were suddenly 
completely recognisable. We couldn't go anywhere without them being swarmed and um, they were just so loved and so appreciated. And, um, yeah, I suppose we just benefited from that in the league. We play at the Emirates a lot now. We sell out the Emirates. Um, yeah, it's just a, a different league from when I first started there and that's within a couple of years. I've only been in the league four years, but it definitely has a different, completely different landscape now. So they're the questions I have for you. I, I, before I spoke to you, I was reading and I was reading about the Euros and I think they said on the BBC like 22 million people watched and like ex- extraordinary numbers. So uh, in, a, in, a, in a full season now-ish, uh, how many games do you play for Arsenal in a full season with cup ties and representatives? And um, It would be, so what is it in the league, like 20-something and then cups obviously depends how far you go. We used we're not in the Champions League this year, but we play a few more with Conti Cup. So it's got to be like forty something, forty to forty. Yeah, maybe a bit more. And in a home and away tie, like when you're playing at the Emirates, how many people are coming to watch? Um, so the la- we played a Champions League game. Uh, against Wolfsburg there, and we had 60. So Barcelona awaits then. Who grabs that final ticket to Eindhoven in front of a record turnout here at the Emirates? Very nicely indeed. And now we're getting between, you know, 40 to 50. Um, Yeah, good, good crowd numbers, like most times we play there now. So we've got... um, Chelsea coming up and I'm pretty sure that's going to sell out. I think they're already at about 45, maybe a little bit more. And the coverage, like the AFL, this weekend, Steph, I'm sure you're aware, as we're recording this, it was the AFLW grand final yesterday, which is on the back page of the paper today. The day, the Saturday night was the BBL, WBBL final, which was a front page of the paper on Sunday morning. What's the coverage like? Is it, Are you broadcast on Sky? Where, 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 what's, what's the consumption of your football like? Yeah, the coverage is really, really good. Um, I think not every game, it's it's very similar probably to the men's structure, which is awesome. It, it kind of replicates that. Um, some games are on BBC, some are on Sky, um, but majority are broadcast. And then it's the same, you know, papers. Um, most of the time the, there seems to be an equality about the way that it gets represented, maybe not at all levels like I think the top teams probably get more than maybe some of the struggling teams in terms of you know being in the paper in terms of results like you'd probably see a pretty even spread it is like that in the men's but probably just to a different degree um but yeah in terms of the coverage you know there's pre-game shows post-game shows um midweek shows that you know analyzing everything and uh, it's definitely come a long way and is starting to replicate the format of the men's. Like, I think if you watch a Sky broadcast, they look pretty much identical to the way that the men's setup would look. And that's yep. kind of the and aim. On, on that, uh, something that stuck with me, um, Steph, Elise Perry, when she came on the show four years ago, um, who obviously played for the Matildas and now has done amazing things in cricket, she thought equality of reporting in the media in her world was when she could open the paper after a game of cricket and if she got out for five to a shot that she thought wasn't good, that it would be written in the paper that she'd be criticised for the way she was dismissed. She said, to me, that's when we've achieved true equality, when 
performance. We're writing about performance rather than crowds or numbers and there's critical performance. Is there critical performance? If you if you let a goal in uh, for Arsenal and you made a hash of something, which I know never happens, but say it did once, for, for instance, is it written about in that way like it would be if your equivalent defender for the male Arsenal team would be? Do you understand where I'm coming yeah, from the question? definitely, yeah. I think it would be written about in the same way, but then if you maybe look at that on social media, for instance, the, yep. the fire levels that you would get would be very different. I think if you see, okay. um, like, for instance, Ramsdale for the men's made a mistake recently and yes. I remember yes. going on Twitter and it was everywhere. It was just like attack, 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 whereas I think if a female doing that, it wouldn't be quite the same level at the moment. It wouldn't be as much of it, but I think writing-wise, journalism reporting these days it would get reported that it was a you know a blunder and whatever it would be similar language and I would say especially in England that is the case it's quite um cutthroat here and brutal because it's like a a cultural thing here football is just like life and death it's everything so um that's definitely starting to filter through to the women's game and I think in terms of that brutality and honesty and, you know, you've made a mistake, this is what it is, that is definitely there in the game these days a lot more than it used to be. And there's so many more eyes on it, which is obviously what you want. And as an athlete, when we're on that topic, as an athlete, how do you react to um, criticism, negativity about your performance, which is the life of, well, not just athletes, anyone in a public position in 2023 in this world is open to people giving you their opinion directly through social media. But in, in your, you know, on the back of the sun in your case. Yeah, um, I think it's something that I've gotten better at. I think I used to read everything and like feed off the positive energy and because that's all there was in the past. But definitely now you'll get a lot of negative comments. You'll get a lot of hate. You'll see a lot of things that you don't want to see and it's about mm. filtering through that more than anything. Sometimes you see something and you haven't meant to and you read it and it does automatically just get to you and then you think about it so much and it has such a negative, it can have such a negative impact. And I think in the past I might have let it get to me too much and I used to think about it too much, but now I'm very good at filtering who I listen to and if I read something I'm just like, like well, they don't know what they're talking about. I know exactly what was happening in this moment. I know what I was trying to do. I know the people that matter, the people that give me advice, that critique me, and I have those pillars that I'll always listen to and then everything else is just sort of blurred out. So I think over time I've definitely got really good at that and mostly it's just for me staying off anything that allows you to read things that are just going to impact you negatively because... As strong as you are, and I think a lot of people and athletes might say that they read things and they don't care, I think there's always an aspect of human nature where you're going to care and you're going to feel it in some aspect and it's going to sit in a little part of your brain. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just about filtering out things and, like you said, that's part of life. Now it's everyone's entitled to opinion on social media platforms and um, as female footballers we really haven't, always had it and like Elise said that's a sign of equality in a sense and it's 
a sign that things are, you know, people are interested, people care. Because I think that's the main thing. People really care about their team. So if you make a mistake or you do A, B and C that's not good, then they're going to have something to say about it. And I think we've all supported a team and you know that you you passionately care about something, you, you have an opinion and that's totally valid. That is the end of Steph Catley, part A. I reckon part B is where the goosebumps come, so don't be missing it.